and welcome to Between Two COOs, where phenomenal chief operating officers come to share their knowledge, advice, and at the very end, crazy stories. I'm your host, Michael Koenig, and I'm excited to welcome our guest, Angela Tucci, COO at Uplight, a technology partner for energy providers and the clean energy ecosystem to help them reach their decarbonization goals. Uplight was last valued at $1.5 billion, which is an achievement in and of itself, let alone for a company that's only three years old. Before Angela was COO at Uplight, she was Chief Strategy Officer at Symantec, Chief Revenue Officer and Chief Marketing Officer at Rally Software, and Chief Executive Officer at Aptu. So clearly she's a real underachiever. Angela is also the chairperson of the Board of Trustees at the Anita Borg Institute for Women in Technology. And for the next time you play exec trivia with your friends, Angela is also in the Collegiate Softball Hall of Fame. And don't ask where I dug that up. Welcome, Angela. Thanks for joining me. I'm so excited to have you on. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks for asking me to be in attendance. Uh, so first off, you've been a founder, a CMO, a CSO, a GM, a CRO, a CEO, and now a COO. I mean, what's the deal? Pick a, pick a role, right? Pick exactly. a role already. Exactly. I'm 105, <laughs> by the way, everybody. So you won't get to see the video of me, but it's true. I'm uh, yeah, the first uh, octogenarian plus, you know, or whatever. The, that's not the one for 100. But anyway, centaurian or something like Cent that? Centaur <laughs> centennial? I don't know. I don't know. But, but all kidding aside, I mean, can you tell us about your path to joining Uplight as COO? How, how'd you end up here? And what drew you to the company and the COO role in particular? <laughs> well, um, I, my career actually started as a, as a, a person a, being a physicist in the medical device industry. So it's obvious how I got here, isn't it? So <laughs> a couple of right turns, a couple of left turns. Um, but certainly at this stage of my life, um, after 25 years in the software industry and selling IT software that made things more productive, made them easier, made them leading edge, I wanted to be in a company where that had impact. And uh, people younger than I have figured out that that's actually the way that they want to live in general. I, I'm a slow learner, it seems. And so I uh, finally got to a place where the work that I do needs to matter uh, for my kids, you know, for the for the, my community and, and really for the world. And so Uplight was a, was a great choice because it is a mission-based organization. It's a B Corp, B Corp certified, cares very much about using business as a force for good. And I was um, actually introduced to them through a, a friend. So it was one of those where somebody said, hey, you should get to know the CEO over there. He could use some help. And so after a few conversations and, and a bunch of interviews, there I was uh, becoming their COO. So tell us about the B Corp certification. First off, for our listeners, can you give us a, a brief tidbit on what that is? And also, why is it important? Well, B Corp certification says that you are part of a business that is doing good while also being, uh, you know, part of the cogs of, of capitalism. So you have to be able to demonstrate that you're giving back, you're giving back to the community. And in our case, um, what we're most focused on is reducing the carbon footprint of of people in within the ecosystem, businesses, um, utility providers and their consumption of coal uh, over, you know, using renewables. So we have multiple ways in which to illustrate that we can be a, a business that's a that's a force for good. And uh, and you go through a very rigorous assessment in order to, to get there. And we're actually coming up for our, our uh, three year um, assessment at this point. So we're uh, you know hoping we get it again because it's not it's not something that's a slam dunk either. Getting back to to your roles, 
having sat in all of those other executive roles, how do you think that has changed your perspective and approach to being a COO? Well, I, I think in general, it's it, it's good to have some specialization. Like you've you've walked in these different roles, and 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 you understand at least to some level what it what it takes to be the CRO, or the CMO, or even the CEO who's who you know, has all these sleepless nights. So I think the CEO role that I I can occupy comes from a a great deal of experience in in functional specifics, but also having seen the totality of the system as a whole um, and the concerns as a whole. I might also add that, you know, I think I've also learned more about myself. You mentioned earlier that I was a founder of of a company. I've actually founded a couple of companies. I'm not a visionary. Like I like to get stuff done. I, you know, I like to check things off lists. I like to make forward progress. Am I going to invent something? Eh, you know, probably maybe a better way of working for, you know, <laughs> but certainly not going to invent the next technology. So I also think it's it's a, a nice complementary position from from my experience base to what can be really helpful for a, a CEO and also to be complementary to the people who ultimately end up reporting to me because um, I have an empathy for those roles. I, I can appreciate that on, on a number of different levels. So in terms of supporting your CEO, Adrian, how have you divided up the areas of responsibility? Who, who does what when? <laughs> it, it's somewhat simple at, at, it, at its most basic level. Adrian is a tremendous rainmaker. And might I add, he's one of the few CEOs I've worked for that's not a narcissist. There's so many narcissists in this world. And I, I had a rule, no more narcissists. And, um, and I just found this really good human in Adrian. And, uh, and this impressive human who's been able to, you know, over the years be consistent to his values and, and uh, really build enduring relationships that in general, you know, have led to these rainmaking moments, like you mentioned of the one and a half billion dollar valuation, you know, kudos to him. Kudos also to, um, to, to Justin Siegel, who's also part of this, uh, part of this leadership team. But that said, he, he came to me and said, I'm not an operator. Like, I'm not the guy who's going to follow up and get the things done. I need somebody who can execute the plan. And he put the job description as simply as that. Your job is to execute the plan, Angela. And I said, great. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I'm, I'm in. So, um, yeah. So that that's the way the job description was written. And it was also how the navigation and appreciation for what skills we have, how we can really complement one another. And it is such a complementary role. There has to be that that yin and yang almost. You mentioned having a lot of conversations with him, going through a lot of interviews. How did you assess whether or not this was going to be a working relation, great working relationship outside of just his his uh, humbleness and and lack of narcissism, <laughs> which was a big one. Um... So, so one of the things I, you know, you've, you've been in the Boulder community and, and you know, it's not a, you know, it's not a thriving metropolis the size of New York City or anything like that. So it's, it's a pretty small community and being able to get references and, and background on, on Adrian was pretty straightforward. He'll tell you he did the same thing with me. So reputation matters in our small pond. Um, and his reputation was quite strong. The, the other thing that I would say, though, is when I left my last job, I wrote down all of the characteristics that I was seeking in my next job 
before I started interviewing. Because you know how we all have that confirmation bias. Oh, we really like this person or we really like that company. And and, and your significant other says, I thought you said you'd never do that again. <laughs> so, so I wrote it down in advance and I actually had a few people hold me accountable, including my significant other, to, uh, to what I had laid forth. And I did a, you know, I did a spreadsheet very small spreadsheet, not very sophisticated, but I did a spreadsheet to figure out whether it was a good fit, both him and and the company. That's great. You learn from your experiences. You figure out what you didn't like at the previous one or or what you wish there was more of, and then you, you apply that the next time around so we don't repeat the same mistake. I love it. Can you tell us more about Uplight? How does it help consumers reduce carbon emissions and utility companies reach their decarbonization goals? Sure. So it's it's a pretty neat company that does some things that might seem pretty simple. Um, largely, it starts from a place of, of running programs on behalf of the utilities to get you and me to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, so if you get a home energy report in the mail that says your neighbors are better than you are <laughs> with regards to how they um, utilize, you know, their, their bill is, is less than yours per square foot. Um, there's some company in the background that's doing the analytics to make that comparison realistic um, and who's assembling and literally putting the, the paper in the envelope, which I know all of us are cringing at the paper in an envelope, but many people still receive them that way and, uh, and creating that comparison. And, and you would think, well, isn't it pretty easy to compare your neighbor? Not really, because the neighbor's house maybe have been built in the nineties and your house has been built within the last few years. So you're actually getting a right comparable set takes some, takes some work. So you're, you're applying multiple data sets, et cetera, et cetera, to come up with an effective home energy report. Once you come up with that home energy report, maybe you want to go to the utilities marketplace and buy an S thermostat in order to be able to, to, to be able to get a more effective um, utilization of, of your energy from the, from the utility. And, um, and, and you want to get a rebate for that. Well, Uplight will also, um, branded by the utility, run the marketplace on behalf of that utility and go so far as to make it seamless for you to get that rebate so that you don't have to go to Best Buy and then put in the code and then get the utility so that it's it's multi-step. And then the last piece that's pretty cool is that, and, and most pertinent, is, is where the utilities are particularly nervous, which is um, trying to lower their peak uh, peak demand from the from customers as they come home after work, turn on the air conditioner and plug in their EV. That's going to create a tremendous spike on the grid, and they're going to have to turn on power plants that they don't want to necessarily turn on because the federal government is saying we really want you to reduce <laughs> carbon emissions, not increase them. So our role in that is actually orchestrating your energy consumption so that we're pre-cooling your house before you come home. And we have the ability uh, to, to basically make suggestions and or if you agree as the consumer, take over when your EV is charging. Um, so we call that demand response so and, and orchestration. So imagine now with the electrification that we're all plugging stuff in, we're getting our solar panels, that there's going to be a tremendous amount of pull on the grid at a time when we 
don't want any of it to be with uh, anything but renewable energy. And so we're sitting here with the software potential to be able to orchestrate all of that on behalf of consumers and businesses where the utility gets to control the knob on, on how much and when. That's remarkable. So it's, it's actually taking customers' usage into account and then servicing those customers based on their actual need versus and rather optimizing for that as well that's quite that's quite remarkable to be frank. yeah it's it's really cool I, you know and i didn't know that going in by the way so i've learned this over time it doesn't come yeah. across if you go to the website but that orchestration is is pretty neat and pretty difficult to do our algorithms are actually better than what you can get with your with your thermostat for instance and then the coupling of all the different things in your home we can actually tell you know through through our own AI, like what's sitting behind your meter? Oh, wait, that's the fridge, that's the air conditioner, that's the that's the the water heater, and so that's giving us also better better uh, accuracy than what you can get sort of off the shelf. So I can throw away. Have you heard of Sense? It's that little thing that connects to your uh, electric panel and and does something similar. So I can throw it away as soon as my <laughs> my utility company signs on with you all. What I find interesting is, in particular, the origin story of Uplight, right? It, as I read, it came into being through the acquisition of six companies over the course of seven or eight months. Now, that's not novel, right? It's a pretty common private equity move of buying a bunch of companies and rolling them up. What I find really interesting to that is that it was done, conceived of, and executed by Adrian, the founder. It's kind of like flipping it on its head. You, you turn to those inorganic channels once everything else is established and humming along. I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, and I, I think it harkens back to what I originally said about the rainmaking capabilities of Adrian. Like he just thinks on a scale that you really need of somebody who wants to change the world and especially affect climate change. Um, so you know, he's always puzzling on these macro moves and coupling it with a great deal of industry engagement, relationship building, pulling from multiple sources, bringing together disparate dots in ways that nobody would think of, um, and continuing to be, I think, in these win-win discussions that, that was making it possible. So he comes across as extremely trustworthy. So to also get six companies or five, he was one of the six, um, five companies to be willing to transact, to get a private equity firm to be willing to fund that or basically become the primary owner um, in order to get you know all of these different entities and, and real humans <laughs> to agree and move forward was a, it was really a testament to his, you know, I'll call it sort of leadership, but, you know, again, on this macro level and just his own humility and, and wholesomeness as an individual to, to be credible. You mentioned private equity. I, I saw that Uplight went the private equity route. You had VC funding at, I think, early on stage and then private equity um, acquired that. Why continue on with private equity versus venture capital is, is, because I, I know that there are VC firms out there that would fund acquisitions. 
It's a good question that you probably would have to ask to Adrian. I, I can guess at this point um, that we had in this community here in Colorado, a really strong private equity firm with expertise in the utility space, people that he had built relationships with. And I'm guessing there was a bit of selling as well as, you know, on both sides of the, of the aisle that said that, that this could be a play that could go bigger faster with with this kind of backing and it's been parlayed into an even bigger investment that you might ask me about but that there's now new people sitting around the table as a result of this first move to private equity including at the table was one of the strategics that was invested in simple energy one of the companies that came into this mix so think of it as as one of the five adrian's was the sixth um, that had aes which is a fortune 500 company here in the us as an investor in simple who rolled their equity into this future state and, and made an investment as well so really that partnership the the, the cachet that you could imagine of having such a, uh, an incredible strategic in this mix who's been a wonderful partner uh, that those you know those ingredients all said we can really go with a step change versus a VC path which might feel more evolutionary. So when you you have all of these different companies together, right after the acquisition comes the the integration, and I'm guessing that you all have have figured it out. <laughs> In terms of the the cultural differences, um, all, all companies are different, right? The cultures within those companies are different. How do you marry those in? And are there differences that are born out of being a company that, that has such a focus on M&A versus more of that smaller step route? Well, I think the, the, the biggest contrast we had in terms of the companies coming in, and, and, and to be clear, I came in after the six companies were merged together. I had, it was about six months later, um, and, and there were certainly different cultures and different belief systems, but the most notable was really the spectrum between almost a nonprofit and a for-profit business. So there were people who were just glad to be trying to, you know, affect the clean energy ecosystem and reduce the carbon footprint. And there are other people like, well, we got to make money. Um, so, so I think that combination actually became pretty powerful to be able to illustrate how you can create longevity with bringing the best of both. That in fact, we need to do good, which then led to this, you know, our B Corp certification. And by the way, we just got private equity investment and these people are expecting a return. <laughs> so, so, you know, how can we parlay again, this great investment into really the impact that we want to make in the world? Um, but culturally it was definitely, you know, everybody was walking around the elephant seeing something slightly different um, and took, and I will say to this day, at times, you can see some of those roots in the in the discussions and questions we get through still a very diverse by location and company origin um, set of employees on this, you know, is it an NGO or is it really a, 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 a for-profit entity? How about from an operational perspective, what are some of the challenges that you face that are maybe a little bit different than those that you have come across in your previous roles? <laughs> COVID? Um, <laughs> yeah. Gosh, yeah. So how do you integrate six companies during COVID? Um, so I joined 
six weeks was it before we were in lockdown? And of course, we've all gone through the same conversations at home of, oh, it's week four and we're still doing this. Oh, it's week six. Oh, it's it's six months. It's two years. So, um, so first and foremost was really thinking, how do we bring together six disparate companies in COVID when we can't travel and, and use the tools that we're best at, especially Adrian, that relationship building by by getting on a plane. I mean, I when I was interviewing, I remember him saying, oh, we've got six different you know holiday parties and I'm going to be at all six of them because he would go to Vancouver and then Seattle and Boston and ever and uh, and uh, and Pune where we had a development shop. So, you know, the the man is a face-to-face, human-to-human um, interactor. And, uh, and so now here we are behind Zoom. Well, in some ways, COVID was a blessing to accelerating becoming one company because I couldn't tell where you were. I couldn't tell that you were in the Seattle office. I could tell you were in your basement as I am right now. I couldn't tell though what geography you were in. Um, and I, so I couldn't leap to conclusions that when you said something, oh, that was because you're part of such and such former company. Um, and we were all in our own little mini crisis at the time. So we had a shared experience of now what do we do? <laughs> we're working remotely. We're kind of scared as to what's going on. We're trying to bring these companies together. Let's, you know, let's start to find the commonality between us versus the differences. And I think that was first and foremost, um, you know, it made the people part easier. And as I think we all know, it always comes down to people. You can put processes and software tools and all sorts of mechanics in place, but pesky humans will can derail it faster than anything. And and getting the humans on board was a big, big piece of the puzzle. And, and COVID was very different in that regard. Um, but also, like I said, played played a little in our favor. Not many companies would say that from a, from a culture standpoint, that it that it played into the favor, but most companies are now starting to travel again. Is that something that's on the horizon in terms of getting all of the six companies together or kind of taking it day by day? It It is starting to, to, to be a back to in-person. So we have a Boulder office, Boulder, Colorado office, and, um, and it's open, so you can go to it. Um, we're encouraging people to, to come back into the office. We just opened a, a beautiful Boston office, likewise encouraging people to come back. Um, we are taking a line on being vaccinated to be in the office. We're not requiring it for employment, but we are requiring it for being in the office. And, um, and, and we will start opening the, the rest of the offices here soon. Now, not every location has a sufficient um, employee nexus to, for us to have an office. So there's a couple of places where we won't have any offices. And frankly, we've started hiring much more on a, on a, on a, where do you live? Doesn't really matter. You're, you're uh, in Ann Arbor. One of my favorite employees is in Ann Arbor, um, you know, and, and does a great job from there and is in the office in Boulder when he needs to come in and otherwise is doing a great job remotely. So, so I think the, the, the returning is, is, is going to happen a bit slowly. The other thing is that utilities are safety first. So they make a product, if you'll keep in mind, that kill, can kill people, right? Electricity can kill. And they operate that way in terms of a seriousness and gravity around safety. So they too are starting to open up their, um, their, their willingness to meet with us in person. So, you know, meeting with clients in person, if you're, especially if you're a salesperson, feels much 
easier. Um, so we're, we're starting to see some of that as well. So let's talk about your clients. You have at least 80 of the largest utility companies in the country. How many consumers do those 80 serve and are, are there more than 80 now? 110 million um, consumers are sitting on the other side of that. So what is that, about a third of the of the nation? So of that, I would call, you know, a fraction, let's call it like 70 million that are actually active. And then depending on the product line, it, your mileage will vary. But um, basically getting as many of those end users or, or consumers in, enrolled is important. We also sell to, to, to businesses too. So utilities to the business side of it. So think everything from small businesses, the dry cleaner on through to the apartment building, multifamily um, building um, operators to people who are running, you know, big companies who have um, energy needs. So all of those are also in this mix. How do you resource those two? How do you decide which you're going to really pursue with a large staff versus the other? Well, you did say we were a bit acquisitive. So we did buy a company recently that uh, is focused on what's called CNI, which really means um, commercial and industrial. So that could be a factory or that could just be, again, that dry cleaner. Um, so we have been continuing to diversify our our portfolio, if you will, of solutions because the utility is serving um serving the entirety of the population, albeit some some big companies will go direct to like the wholesale sellers. So that's also another model out there. Um, but our residential routes were starting to blend into uh, now more of this commercial sector. And, and, and that's important to the mission. It's also a way that we move towards the mission more quickly. So when you're asking like, how are we making these decisions? Oftentimes we're looking at value stacking and impact. What's, what's the CO2 reduction that we can make? And then the other things, what's the, the bill reduction we can make? So how do we help the community again? How do we help you reduce your bill? But also how do we help move more of the clean energy consumption over, over traditional carbon? Based models. So there are, and correct me if I'm wrong, around 3,000 utility companies within the U.S. Um, and I'll, they all have, or many have, different tech stacks, different systems, a lot are antiquated. How do you sell into that? How do you prioritize? What is that sales cycle like? And, and how, do you, how do you scale it? Oh gosh, for those of you listening who remember selling on-premise software, we're not on-prem, but it's a lot like that sales cycle of, you know, an RFP, a, a you know, bringing it down to a handful of bidders, um, and it acts a lot like, um, as you would expect, what, where we sell into, which is more the regulated side. So when you say the, you know, the, the thousands, the, there's a lot of deregulated plus municipalities, very small companies. We really deal with the top tier, largest providers in the regulated space, which means they, they have a monopoly in their community. Excel Energy here in, in Colorado or in, in the Midwest is a, is a monopoly and regulated as a result so that they're not taking advantage of, of their customers by, you know, by accident or whatever. So, um, so we're, we're very targeted. Um, as I said, uh, many times the process has to be a bid process. That's what the regulators expect. Um, you have to justify if you sole source. 
Um, and then the, the sales cycles themselves are anywhere between nine and 12 months. So it's, you know, we can kind of see the business that we're going to do this year, at least, or the possibility of business this year, and also have to pay attention to the politics that's out there. Because if the regulators change their mind or a state goes from blue to red, perhaps it changes their interest level and the funding that they'll actually get from the state in order to, to do a clean energy program. Um, we saw this um, we saw this in Ohio a couple of years ago where, where basically the clean energy programs disappeared. Um, during COVID, we saw the regulators say, hey, some states can't afford um, to be doing this sort of programmatic work. And so Hawaii, for instance, was another state that changed its, its stance. Um, you know, and again, this is all with the, the intent to do right by the consumer. So um, don't hear judgment in my words so much as just the, kind of the way the system works. <laughs> that lends itself to a whole nother factor of externalities that can impact your business that you then have to take into account and plan around. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that. It's the first time I've actually used all five forces of um, Porter's model. For those of you with your MBA, you remember that book that's on your shelf. Um, and in in my t uh, time in the software industry, this is the first time where that that uh, regulatory regulatory aspect has come into such you know a high degree of play. It's it's unbelievable. So Adrian talked about how there's a essentially a countdown clock of roughly 90 months to act on reducing global warming before the earth reaches the point of no return. So no pressure on the team, right? <laughs> None whatsoever, but, but a lot of people in, in for the challenge. Right. I, and I can see how that would certainly motivate everyone to accomplish extraordinary things in, in a short period of time. But how do you and Adrian as leaders walk the fine line of preventing that motivation from turning into a doomsday clock that just stresses the heck out of everyone in the company. Yeah, it's a, that's a great question because it came up at our annual, what we call is upsite. So it used to be an offsite. Now it's an upsite. And then it was on zoom. Um, everybody was at home pretty much. And, um, and, and we were, we were illustrating that, you know, 90 months. Um, and, and it was, I guess the, you know, the, the leadership really being sad about it and upset about it and, and authentic about it the same way that so many of our employees, I mean, we've got such wonderful mission based employees who, um, who deeply care. Um, and, and so showing them a path <laughs> to, to like how they are part of the solution, how they can make a difference. And, you know, and, and I think it gets a little diluted, right? When you think we're not going to singly handle, you know, single-handedly change it. So, you know, we're, we're part of the, part of the solution, but it's going to take a lot more than that. But you'll find some of our employees who will be pretty bummed out when the news shows whatever is the latest statistics. So the emotional heart of the company is very strong. Um, and, uh, and it, uh, you know, gives us, you know, on the, on the flip side of it, as all of us are trying to think through, how do we retain employees? Well, you know, we're competing with other missions. We're not competing with the local IT companies in our community because people do, really do want to work somewhere where the work matters, mm -hmm. at, at least in this regard, not to say that the work doesn't matter at other people's companies. Let's get back to, to your career and the learnings along the way. What did you learn? And I'm sure there were a lot, but is there something in particular that you learned the hard way that you wish you had known back when you took that first leadership role? Oh gosh. Yeah. I, 
I, I remember sitting, I was, it was a transition time um, coming out with my MBA. And of course I was smarter than everybody else. No, but I was conditioned to somehow think that way. So excuse my ego from running amok. And I remember a, a gentleman sitting across the table from me who was a salesman saying, you're not going to be invited to this next meeting until basically you can get your, <laughs> you know, you can get your ego in check. Um, and I think that was the first time, and to his credit, he was tried to be kind about it, that, you know, I started to actually understand what EQ was, right? At, you know, up until that point, and now the schools, I, mean, I remember I'm over 100, you know, now schools teach more about how to, how to actually, you know, be a, you know, a constructive member of a team and how to engage well with one another and how to play, you know, how to play nice um, and in a, in a good and constructive and, and creative way. Um, but that wasn't really the, the teachings I had had. I, I was also, and still, I'm an only child. And so I always say that my parents didn't socialize me well when I was a kid. So I wasn't really good with humans. My dad, I think at one point said, whatever you do, honey, just don't don't lead people. And so and I thought, okay. So, you know, so this like persona of me is actually existing in my head. Um so, you know, I, I think I had multiple messages along the way to remind me that I was human. I wasn't always good at stuff, <laughs> that people saw me and at least had the had the willingness to, to take the mirror and say, huh, you know, this, this is kind of how you're showing up to others. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time actually trying to think through and, and work on how to be more approachable, how to be, I, I think I'm very humble now because I've, I've had enough failures in my life to know that, <laughs> that I, that there's enough, um, yeah, there, there, there's enough to be humble about, um, but also just how to, how to show up in a way that's commensurate with what people need in the moment. And, um, and, and that, by the way, is a continuous journey. Like I only the best politicians, I think actually know how to do that. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a student always. What have you learned? What's the secret there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. I don't know. I do get it wrong sometimes. Absolutely get it wrong sometimes. For the folks out there who are interested in becoming a COO or, already are a COO, what advice would you have for them as they start to get into those leadership roles? It's really systems thinking and you got to ask yourself and it sounds, it's, it sounds like you're not capable of something if you're not a systems thinker. And I don't mean it that way. There's people who are wonderful at going deep and, and, and being experts, you know, 10 levels down, you know, the, the, the force multiplier software engineer who can, you know, make such a huge difference. I, you know, think of it as for the COO role, you have to see the system um, because there's all of this interplay that you're trying to optimize for or fix or, or shape at any given time. And if you can't see it and explain it and, 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 and give some examples as to the what and the why, um, people aren't going to, aren't going to follow you. You're going to end up devolving into really just doing functional work and have missed the point of your role. Um, so, you know, I, I had the, the good fortune to be in a company that sold agile software and agile transformations. So I got to learn how to do change management from something different than sort of traditional waterfall change management practices. Um, that became a tool in the tool belt in terms of how to think about, uh, affecting change of a system. 
Um, I worked very closely with a gentleman who was who could write the book on systems thinking um, that helped helped me in how you know what constitutes a system because you got to be like well what does it mean to be a systems thinker or what is a system so uh, so I you know I've pushed myself on that system but I suspect some of you on the on this uh, podcast are, are you know that you're curious about what's working and what's not or what's the gap you know maybe for those athletes on the phone I might say always think about seeing the whole field but also where the open space is you know as a as a metaphor for how to how to approach it Okay, and for everyone else who's not an athlete, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I feel like as a woman, sometimes I get to throw around more sports analogies than the than the men do. I, maybe which is an unfair advantage, um, but because <laughs> I love love that sports history that you brought up at one point. Um, but yes, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's that's too good. You're also the the chairperson of the board of trustees for the Anita Borg Institute for Women in Technology. Can you tell us a bit about that? organization why why is it near and dear to you oh this one's this one's so powerful for me so back when i was at semantic i remember showing up to a meeting where i you know i was at a fancy title of chief strategy officer and so i, I was talking to a group of women and they were all circled around and i was i was really actually trying to find some time to have have lunch um, so i asked them a simple question what's your name and what do you do here at semantic and you would have thought I had asked these people to strip naked and walk on hot coals. I like they were so like I have to speak and I have to speak publicly and I have to be seen. And I thought, oh, this is a problem. Um, you know, I've asked you something that's really special about you. Who are you? What do you do? And uh, and I didn't ask for a lot of details, so I didn't want to put anybody on the spot. But at that moment, I realized I could really help these women with how they were being seen, the advocacy to help them and, um, and, and give more voice where people felt like they didn't have one. And, and the Anita Borg Institute, which Semantic was partnered with at the time, asked if I would become a board member. And I thought, great, here's a great match. Um, and for so long, I have to admit, I walked the planet a bit, not thinking that I was male or female. I am female, obviously, um, or maybe not so obviously, but I will, I'm declared, <laughs> I've declared myself female. And, um, and yet I wasn't walking the planet in advocacy for other women. And, and so this organization gave me the opportunity to be in it, both an ally, an advocate, and help bring voice and equity to, to women who don't, who don't feel it in their daily jobs. So for those of us that aren't currently involved in, in the Institute, what do you think are some tactics that we can employ within our companies tomorrow that can help that? Um, the simple stuff that many of you probably have already done, um, but revisiting it because in many ways it never gets old is around unconscious bias. You know, we take the course, we, we show up, we say it's so obvious, and then we go back to our old ways and we don't get the escape velocity of, of actually practicing it. Um, you know, we are in a hiring crunch as companies, right, where there's such scarcity of talent out there. So what are we likely to do? We're going to hire like because we know like people to us for not putting a diverse candidate set forward we will not get diverse people to to be in our companies and we'll do a disservice to the to the overall um, creativity of that company um, and and I can't 
say enough. You know, I, I have a woman who, who works for me who is black and she says, I feel safe talking to you um, and, uh, and other leaders who are at the sea level because I work for a Jewish man, I work with a woman who is a lesbian and I work with um, a gentleman who is a uh, who is Asian, and she says, "So I feel safe amongst you," and uh, and and you think, "Gosh, you know, as a you know, as any human, you you try to think, well, I'm certainly safe, but if you're a black woman, you don't you don't feel safe um, a lot of the time." And so to hear her say that, I would also share, be aware that while you believe you're being utterly safe, that's not the experience of the minority typically. So it's the psychological safety that people are getting from who they're seeing around themselves. And that's often difficult to get to, especially in tech, right? If you look, and I remember this in Boulder, 20 white guys sitting in a room and then suddenly going, oh, we're not very diverse. We should hire some, we should hire some women. But no one wants to work at that. How do you go about creating the psychological safety and the sort of roots for creating diversity within a company that maybe doesn't have it in its core DNA, but is trying to get there? Oh gosh, do you have another 45 minutes to talk about that topic? Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's a huge topic. Um, and, and one, frankly, our company is struggling with a bit itself um, because there's there's a, ingrained in us is a distrust, um, a d- distrust of the title, a distrust of people who have something different, a distrust. And so finding, you know, beginning the conversations on what, what is also what is our different experiences and privilege we've brought in an expert on identity who's helped us to understand really intersectionality of identities in a way that is illustrative of the privileges that we each have and ask the questions in a way that to illustrate that when you're driving late at night and you're black in Colorado and you're at a stop sign and a cop pulls up next to you you don't feel safe. If you're white, well, maybe you feel a little bit like, gosh, I hope I wasn't speeding, but you don't feel unsafe. And it's those dialogues that start to have the real conversations of, of what, what it really feels to walk in somebody's shoes starts to really build bridges. Now, how do you do that? Bring facilitation, like the, the 10, 10 guys, white guys, that you, example you were bringing, like it's very hard for them to do that. It's gonna, seem, it's gonna seem daunting to an individual to have that conversation with any of those folks. But facilitation, and I think, you know, you, many younger people right now are, are being wonderfully socialized to have these conversations. And so you probably have within your company um, people who are willing to raise their hand and go first in that sort of dialogue. That's very interesting. And I think one of the things that can maybe be a, a, an accelerator of this is now uh, people really embracing not just remote work within the United States, but remote work around the world, which allows you to really build a diverse team and that diversity can beget diversity. It, it can. Um, and then you've got the challenge of time zones. I've never seen how hard it is for us to work time zones. Um, you know, I, when I worked at Symantec, I created a global company, you know, it's all the time zones all the time. Um, but that's a big burden it puts on the workforce to be available to a, to a global job. 
Uh, I'm watching it in, in our, our current company of how we have a Pune India team um, that's very important to us, has a great deal of, of, of intellectual capabilities that we, you know, cherish. And yet they're, you know, 11 and a half to 12 and a half hours away. And so our ability to team, <laughs> you know, is asking one to give up something for the other. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, as a, another plug for a great book to read that has nothing to do about business, but about relationships, the 80-80 marriage, which we could have probably another conversation about, but that it's not a zero-sum game, um, that you want to use radical generosity in, in, in how you approach relationships, including the one with your significant other. Um, but I do watch this sort of zero-sum game of, well, their time, you know, what they're going to be up at eight o'clock and I'm going to be just going to bed. So I don't want to stay up late this time. I'm like, yuck. Yuck. I hate seeing that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult for sure. Uh, time doctor is 150 people across 42 countries. We wouldn't be able to, to operate and work if it weren't for asynchronous communication. So really understanding what can be done asynchronously and in a written form versus being really intentional about those synchronous moments. And I think that there's got to be, I think, maybe more of an education around how to really employ this well so that you can have that distribution. Uh, here I go on my soapbox. So <laughs> no, I love apologies. it. I will, I'm, I'm <laughs> eager to learn more. <laughs> I know we can do better. <laughs> it, it's definitely challenging, though. There, there's no question about it. Well, look, my, we get to my last and my favorite question, which is we've all had those moments where you have a new problem and you've thought, Never thought I'd see that. Do you have one that you can share with us? Sure. And I thought a lot about this one. It's very fresh in my mind because it just happened recently. And it has to do, we went down the diversity path together here, it has to do with diversity and, and actually a, a blind spot that I'm still processing myself. So about a year ago, a group of people in the company came to me anonymously. They said they wanted to remain anonymous to explain certain behaviors that um, a, a certain leader was was uh, exhibiting and how it made them feel and and they were not willing really to go to HR at the time we we were our HR department was just sort of forming and so they didn't feel safe <laughs> to talk to HR so they came to me and they sh they shared and I documented all the things that were that were were done and you know and, and basically wrote a pre-pip and brought the the manager and 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 his manager together and said you know here's here's the sorts of things that need to change and uh, we hired him a coach and um, and i actually spent time with him on a like a bi-weekly basis to also provide coaching and and then about six months later the 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 person was up for promotion. They had, I had gotten some feedback from the anonymous people. They, they said that he, it was getting better. Um, and he, uh, he was given a, a promotion um, from the leader that he was working with. And I come to find that the leader he was working with wasn't, wasn't the person we were going to stick with, wasn't the right leader and hired a new leader who came in and picked up the rock under which this manager had been working and found that it was a mess. And, and it was on my watch. It was on my watch. So um, meaning that, that this was really around how people felt psychologically safe in the organization and actually didn't think we, we cared. Um, 
we I thought at the time I was doing all the right steps, had checked all the right boxes, um, but didn't do enough homework in, in hindsight to really have, have done a proper vetting of, you know, really had the situation improved or did I sort of take some shortcuts when I reflect back on it? And, um, and I guess, you know, the, to summarize it, I think the, the, the learning for me is, you know, you mentioned the Nita Borg Institute. I'm such a champion for diversity in general and then specifically for gender. And I miss this in my own company. So, um, yeah, and I feel pretty badly about that. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, this is how we learn and get better. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, you're, you're at about 600 people now. Yes. Correct me if I'm wrong. Cut yourself some some slack here. All <laughs> well, right? thank it's you. a pretty big organization. You can't be on top of it. Well, everything. thank you. Well, thanks for sharing. I, I appreciate it. It's always difficult to find one of those stories that you can share and you're not going to say, uh-oh, I actually can't share that. <laughs> so I appreciate it. We, we learn from those. So, Angela, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Where can people go to keep up with you? LinkedIn, Angela Tucci, um, work for Uplight. You can find me on LinkedIn, old school, I guess, on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, and Angela.Tucci at Uplight.com if you, if you want to send me a, a, a private note that way. Fantastic. Well, there you have it. Angela, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. I, I've absolutely loved it. Thanks for listening to Between Two CLOs. I'm your host, Michael Koenig, and a very special thank you to our guest, Angela Tucci, for joining us. Tune in next time for our next COO chat on Between Two COOs, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Just visit BetweenTwoCOOs.com for more. And if you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell others about the show so they can get great advice from phenomenal COOs. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Tune in next time. And until then, so long.